Welcome to Today on Broadway for Monday, August 10th, 2020. I'm Broadway World's Matt Tamanini. And I'm arts and culture writer Ashley Steves. Ashley, yesterday was a huge day on This Week on Broadway. Yeah. The great Casey Nicola joined Peter, James, and Michael for a conversation. After they were done with that, they talked about their favorite Act One closers, which Ooh. is a really interesting topic. Um, yeah. off, quick, off the top of your head, what is your favorite? Oh, God. Uh, well, it's morose, but it would be <laughs> it'd probably be cabarets. Wait, what I don't what, what is cabarets Act One closer? Cabarets Act One closer is tomorrow belongs to me. Um, oh, yeah. I, just for the you know the gravitas of it. Yeah, yeah. It's now, not it's not a particularly happy one, <laughs> but no. as far as like theatrical power, it's it's that one. Yeah. All right. Cool. A uh, little gross, but you I know, know. I know. Whatever. That's it, what it I'm fits. saying. What is yours? <laughs> I don't know. I was trying to think. Like I, I'm not very smart, so I can't remember when things happen in shows. That's fair. So like I'm defaulting to like the big, you know, like uh, Defying Gravity, but like that wouldn't necessarily mm, be my favorite. Yeah, it's just what I. Sure. It's one of the few that I can remember is definitely I mean, the sun- act one closer. Sunday is a pretty uh, stellar one. That's what I was going to say. Uh, Sunday is probably the only one. Um, because that I can remember because they come back in the second right. act as exactly. the act one characters, but it's just for that one scene. So I was trying to figure out if that was actually the act one closer or not. But Sunday is my more cheerful one. Yeah, I would probably <laughs> Cab- go Sunday. Cabaret is my more dramatic one. Yeah. Yeah, well, you're a little you're, you're a little bit uh, dramatic at times, but thank you. Anyway, you're welcome. Wow. Anyway, um, if you want to <laughs> hear, dare you? I mean, I'm I'm right. Um, <laughs> But if you want to hear all of the This Week on Broadway shows, interviews or not, while they are being recorded, head over to patreon.com slash broadwayradio, broadwayradio.com slash patreon. Join up and you can be a part of those uh, recording sessions. You will also hear all of our episodes hours, if not days, ahead of time um, uh, before they hit our regular feed. All right, Ashley, let's get into cracking my knuckles because this yeah, is going to be fun. It's, I have it's, been, a bit of, it's a bit of a day. <laughs> I have been dying to hear your thoughts on this since uh-huh. the news broke on Friday. But I'm going to go through the news, the, the the facts of it first, and then I'm going to turn, turn it over to you. But last week, advertising agency Spotco filed a lawsuit against Scott Rudin and his various show-specific production companies for roughly $6.3 million in outstanding payments. The payments stemmed from unpaid invoices for shows including To Kill a Mockingbird, West Side Story, The Waverly Gallery, the Lehman Trilogy, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, The Music Man, and more. Apparently, the dispute actually began as far back as September of last fall, but the sides could not come to an agreement in the subsequent, I mean, almost year. The mm. issue is that Spot Cohen Rudin never had an official contract for the work that's done for the producer dating back to 2014. Broadway News said, quote, Throughout their relationship, the two parties have not had a formal written contract, but instead relied on oral agreements and directives from Rudin via email and in-person meetings, according to the suit. So what this means, Ashley, is that Rudin would ask Spotco to go out and, and make ad buys on his behalf. Then the agency would send him an invoice after the fact. That way he could, they wouldn't be assigned to any specific production and he could just decide which show would be advertising in that spot. 
But then as invoices accumulated, he would partially pay them and then kind of like say, well, I'm going to spend some more money. So why don't you go? Um, he put in some new advertising requests kind of in lieu of fulfilling the payments. Then the final payments would generally come after the production had actually closed, since not all, but most of Scott Rudin's productions are limited engagements. But according to the lawsuit, after it became an issue in September, Rudin stopped paying his invoices altogether. So, Ashley, I have three thoughts about this. Okay. (laughs) One, this sounds a lot like the business dealings of another powerful blowhard that most of the Broadway community doesn't like. So just putting that out there. Correct. Two, these outstanding payments trickled down to the outlets where the media buys were actually made. In most cases, Broadway agencies have such good relationships with the publishers since they work with the same ones all the time that they don't pay until the campaign is over. The publisher will send an invoice after the campaign is done. So, especially during the shutdown, Rudin is not only screwing Spotco, but also many of the outlets who could probably use oh, that yeah. money right now. And that's, if you remember... That's a, uh, before that's I, a very big yeah, thing I've been thinking about. Yeah, and yeah. before, if you remember, before I uh, moved over to the Obsessed Network full-time, I was the advertising manager mm-hmm. for one such Broadway publisher. So, Correct. just saying, so... I don't have any insight into this because I've been gone for six months, but I understand how this works. But f- I was going to say, I was curious because, because of course I know that. Uh, I was curious what you were thinking of someone who's had to yeah. deal with that world before, for yeah, sure. Fortunately, I was not on the like accounts receivable side. Like I was more, yeah. you know, in getting materials, but like we have contracts or Broadway world um, has contracts with all the agencies. Like they have to sign a contract and they Mm. are supposed to remit payment 30 days within 30 days of the invoice date. So if we've been sending invoices and they haven't been paying them, they're racking up late fees, which I'm sure Broadway world's admin will, will, you know, wave away because they know the situation, but like, it's really putting Spotco and the publishers in really, really bad situations. But absolutely, my final co- thought about this, Ashley, is why in the world would you put out millions of dollars and not require <laughs> a contract from Scott yeah. Rudin, of all people? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> all, all three uh, thoughts and points are very good because I agree with you on all of those. I, as a freelancer, there isn't a single totally. business dealing I do that doesn't have a contract in place other than like one-off clients where, you know, or not even one-off clients, clients that I've established for a very long time that are like single entities. Scott Rudin may be, you know, Scott Rudin, but his business is not a single entity. So, first of all, on a freelancing side, while you're dealing with any organization that has multiple people and not requiring a contract is absolutely yeah. bananas to me. Like, that's that's bad business. <laughs> put, put it to be Scott Rudin, who, I mean, it's no secret, I don't like. I am very that's, that's well vocal about... Yes. Yeah, and so I'm very vocal about my dislike towards Rudin, but so is a lot of people. He's earned the moniker of being like the worst boss to work for. So once you start taking somebody like that, the fact that you are trusting in somebody, I, I guess, you know, I would assume that he was in good standing before September for the most part, and then just stopped altogether. It, it's a 
crappy organization system that they had before don't get me wrong but if things were getting paid up until september there's a certain amount of trust that they were putting into him to continue to do that and then it just didn't happen yeah i mean i feel like it's just one of those like not it sounds similar to like a ponzi scheme type thing where like he's never actually paying everything in full until the show's closed and it's just kind of rolling i mean like promising here there's here's some more money he's he's saying oh i'll get paid Uh, you get paid when i get paid which which is not how business works right exactly and especially again as, as you said for you know uh publishers that are relying on this money especially right now it's not how this specific business should work by any means so who knows what happened to this i mean scott rudin is notorious for working his way through different agencies he's always been with um o&m from a publicity standpoint but in terms of the advertising advertising agencies he kind of goes through everybody on a fairly, you know, re- regular basis. Every few right, years, he right, switches right. advertising agencies. Um, now that's starting to make more sense. Yeah, it seems like he's jumping ship when the yes. bills are starting to be in the red, it seems. All right, so let's move on, Ashley, to two pieces that I want to discuss with you next. The first comes from The Hollywood Reporter's mm. Scott Feinberg and is titled, How Do You Solve a Problem Like the Tonys? Nice uh, um, sound of music reference there. But in the article, Feinberg, who is the Hollywood Reporter's awards columnist, argues that or basically what we have been talking about a lot, that the Tonys have essentially Mm -hmm. abdicated their responsibility as the most visible aspect of the community during the pandemic. He reports that, quote, The Hollywood Reporter has learned that the Tony Awards Management Committee, which is comprised of representatives of the Broadway League and the American Theater Wing, uh, which established the Tonys and owns the brand, has had a number of Zoom meetings during uh, the pandemic, which various game plans have been considered and then tabled as the severity of the pandemic became increasingly clear. He then goes through three different game plans that apparently the committee is currently considering. Um, th- and I'm, these are all quotes, so I'm, I, I'm not interpreting anything. This is how he lists them. Um, ask NOMCOM, so nominating committee, ask NOMCOM members to select nominees from the shows they were able to see before the shutdown and then conduct a virtual Tony's ceremony soon. Employ the Tony ceremony in 2021, assuming one is possible, to honor the best of both the 2019-2020 and 2020-2021 seasons, each of which will have a, will be, have been abbreviated due to the pandemic. Three, scrap the 2019-2020 Tonys altogether. Now, actually, I think that you and I are on the same page with this because we've talked about it before. Maybe. But which yeah. of these three would you prefer? I mean, we've talked about two a lot. As far as, you know, honoring the essentially just, you know, here is what we've had. This is what the season looked like in 2019, 2020. We want to honor it. And then now we're going to move forward with the other season. I don't see any of them. I mean, at this point, I don't see any option as a good option because as we've talked about many times, they've screwed the pooch so badly. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't know. I, <laughs> I, I hate everything I, around the Tonys at this point. I mean, I have been in favor of number one since the beginning. Let the nominating yeah, committee I mean, have right. their say. They were the ones that saw the most shows um, sure. And do that. Do it virtually. And then if you can have something on CBS to take its place maybe later and do a celebration, great. But get the Tony Awards the out reason- of the way. 
The reason I didn't jump on that immediately, because, yeah, that is probably the best option of the three, because I don't necessarily want to see two ceremonies together. Or combine it. See, I, I, jump- I kind of read it as they combine the first half of the 2019-2020 season with this with what is essentially the second half. So it's actually like combining seasons, I think, know. is what is I'm what an option is, which I think is even worse. But yes. Yeah, but yeah. Well, I mean, what I took of that is that they were going to do we're going to do the first season. Okay, now let's do. Which sucks. I mean, too. assuming we're back in time. Yeah, it all sucks. But the reason why I didn't jump on like let's do a virtual Tony ceremony immediately and you know talk about or talk to the nomcom members. I, <laughs> we should have done this months ago. That, that should have been the plan in the first place. The fact that we're talking about it now. I mean, yeah, that's the best option, but the best option should have been done months ago. So is it still the best option? I don't really know. I don't have an option at this point because again, it was so mismanaged in every possible way. Yeah. The correct answer here is the best option would have been the American Theater Wing and the Broadway League to step up and do their job in yeah. June and plan for this already because and a, the alas, fact, but the fact that we have not done anything uh, in regards to this, which I think you know, maybe you make some money for for you know for the Actors Fund or whatever, or maybe you just give people a reason not to be depressed about the fact that the entire right. community is shut down for a year to a right. year and a half. Like do do, do something, step up. Anyway, the next article actually is about an organization stepping up, and it comes from uh, Deep Tran. She was actually writing it for Backstage, and sh- she looks at how Baltimore Center Stage, under the direction of Stephanie Yabara, who was the former director of special artistic projects at the Public Theater, like the Public Works and all of those things, um, how they became the first theater to respond to the anti-racist demands of the We See You White American Theater movement. According to Deep, quote, among the steps that the theater pledges to take are establishing a permanent light item in its budget directed to anti-racism efforts and training, paying playwrights for workshops and rehearsals, paying artists to attend donor events and post-show talkbacks, eliminating the 10 out of 12 technical rehearsal, and moving from a six-day rehearsal schedule to a five-day one. Now, if if you look at these things, uh, only that first one about the dedicated line item um, actually talks about anti-racism specifically. Mm. But what Yabara said, and some of these things were actually in the works before um, the season got shut down. Sure, so some sure. of these things are are things that have been work been been being worked on. But Yabara said, "quote." Inherent in anti-racist practice is a move toward collective liberation. And when we start challenging the status quo, challenging our inherited assumptions about the way we are supposed to make work, then we often can see the disproportionate impact these practices have on black, indigenous, people of color artists. They're exclusionary. That's all anti-racism is about. It's about dismantling Mm -hmm. those systems. Now, actually, um, I think we're, uh, this is one where I was surprised we weren't 100% on the same page on that last one, but I feel mm. like this is, uh, on the same page. So much of yeah. <laughs> what is not talked about when we talk about why, and I got, I pissed people off on Twitter when I said this, that every theater 
is inherently racist or is, is, is built on inherently racist structures is because of things like this. The gatekeeping that is so high is that you have to be able to financially survive to be an artist. And so many of the people that get ahead are people who Absolutely. come from white affluent families that can yes. support them and They're- being able to open this up to to everybody who doesn't don't have those resources um white black indigenous you know uh, latinx whatever um is good for everybody but it is is, Mm -hmm. it is especially and specifically anti-racist yeah i was thinking about uh, there was a twitter thread not that long ago about you you look at college programs or any kind Mm -hmm. of arts programs for kids like who is going through the training of that it's the affluent usually typically white uh uh, you know, upper class families that uh, these kids are able to go through whatever program they want. And therefore, as you go further and further down the line, uh, your programs continue to look white. And it's all the same system. Everything in higher education that was like the most recent, um, Broadway Advocacy Coalition Forum as well was talking about that, like racism in higher education, how that affects, like, when you go into theater how that affects your entire outlook and also the outcome of everything. So taking apart all these systems that everyone always likes to say that the system isn't working. The system is always working. This is the way it was built to work. (laughs) It's working, just not the way that we want it to work. Yeah, no, exactly. Depending on who the we is, uh, some people do want it to work Exactly. It is built to fail for anyone who wasn't, you know, who the founding fathers had in mind, Mm -hmm. which always the case. Yeah. So we, we, the collective we, have to dismantle these systems, and that's you know, the just the the racist theater system. It's the racist education system. It's the racist any kind of business that you 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 have to change all these structures to make it equitable for everybody. And I think one of the things that pissed people off when I said this initially was that, well, how can you say that about these organizations? They've done all this good work. Good for them. They are still I mean, relying, they are yeah. still existing in a society that benefits both um financially and status-wise. Of course. The things that that benefit the white ruling, you know, group. And the question is, like, if people are saying they've done so much good, for whom, though? Yeah. Who are they doing the good for? And and are they doing the good just to meet quotas and just to be able to say we've got some people of color on our board of directors? Are they actually trying to make things equitable? And here's the thing. You don't have to actually – when people like Griffin Matthews say – and I don't want to speak for him, but when – I hear people say, burn it down. I don't think they actually mean like the public theater and, you know, Baltimore center stage and, uh, you know, the Guthrie need no. to no longer exist. What they're right. saying is build is, down the system and start. Anew. Yes. Use those organizations to affect change inside them and then take that change outside. It's not saying that all of those organizations and all that history and all of the good work that they've done needs to be erased. What they're saying is the the foundation of how they are built needs to be changed to include everybody. So, all right, actually, I've got some news I want to get through here real quickly. First up, Alan Cumming announced on social media on Friday that Club Cumming will be launching a series of virtual variety shows. The schedule, performers, and ticket details will be coming in the next week. 
Um, I feel like Club Coming has to be a favorite spot of yours. Um, absolutely. Yeah, that- and I'm very excited <laughs> to have it back in at least some form. Though yes. it is, I mean, it's back to an extent. They've been doing stuff on social media. They have grab-and-go drinks. So long live Club Coming. Yes. Um, in semi-related musical theater news, um, it was previously reported in July that Jennifer Grey, the uh, you know a- actress and daughter of Joel Grey, um, was set to star and executive produce a new dance movie for Lionsgate. But it was just confirmed uh, last week that it will actually be a sequel to Dirty Dancing. This film will be set in the 90s, but no other plot details were announced. Um, I, my guess is going to be that Baby ended up with Johnny, but he has since passed away, and she's trying to continue Oof. doing the teaching yeah, probably. Did. I mean, probably. Like, what else are you going to do? Patrick Swayze it's died. True. I think that's a good way to honor him. Um, I agree. Yeah. I agree. All right. So there is that. Now let's get to the feel-good recommendations. The first one may or may not make you feel good, um, but the upcoming world premiere production of Sleepless, comma, a musical romance, put out a music video for the recording of the song Out of My Hands. It's performed by actress Kimberly Walsh playing the Meg Ryan role from Sleepless in Seattle. Ashley, I listened to this. Mm. It is one of the most generic songs I've ever heard. And it's one of Mm. those musical theater songs that just has about three to four minutes where nothing is actually said. It's just generic cliche after generic cliche that don't actually say anything specific about anything. So So it could have just been actually like actual lines it didn't yes. have to be a song yeah it, it's that. not yeah it's <laughs> it's it's what we see from a lot of these um uk movie to musical adaptations where they're yeah. not actually good they're just kind of kind of capitalized on it um yep. so not no surprise there the next uh, recommendation i have was done for i the, love that that was a recommendation well <laughs> i think it's something that everybody like, is listen like to this thing i hate it more than anything <laughs> i think it's recommendation in terms of people are going to be interested um and it's something that people will probably make fun of so you want to be caught up on it. Mm, like it all right i'll yeah. allow it thank you Um, The next one is um, uh, coming from the Darkness Rising project that um, deals with um, clinical depression and anxiety, especially um, right now during everything that's going on with the pandemic and the Black Lives Matter protests. It was a performance by a number of Broadway stars, including Michael Kilgore, Aisha Jackson, Antoine L. Smith, and more singing the song from The Wiz, Everybody Rejoice, Brand New Day. So that was mm. really fun. And then the final one is a little bit more sentimental. The cast of the off-Broadway show Brooklynite came together to pay tribute to their co-star Nick Cordero. They performed the song The Rescue Waltz. In the video, um, co-stars from the show Matt Doyle, Nicolette Robinson, Anne Harada, Remy Zakin, Grace McLean, uh, Gerard Cananico, uh, Max Chernin, Alex Boniello, and more, uh, performed the song, um, uh, that was, uh, from the show that originally premiered off Broadway in 2015, which Cordero 
uh, co-starred in. So, mm. so very nice there. Um, and if you don't know Brooklynite, it's a really good show. There was a cast album out, so uh, highly recommend that. Nice. All right. All right. That is all that we have for today. Thank you for listening to Today on Broadway. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Broadway Radio, and you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Matt Ashley, where can the peeps find you? You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at no, this is Ashley. All right, everybody. Have a wonderful Monday. I believe that I will be back with Alicia tomorrow. If not, I'll be by myself. But um, we will uh, be back tomorrow and we will talk to you on Tuesday. <laughs>